when was the last time something completely blew your mind? Well, you're in luck because today, Kaylee Dayton is about to blow your mind. I am so excited for you to learn something that I don't have in my wheelhouse, best practices in the ICU. You might think, wow, that doesn't excite me at all, but don't go yet. I promise you, knowing the difference between DNI and DNS is very important for you and your family. Welcome to the Thy Neighbor Podcast, conversations with everyday people who are crushing it and making the world a more lovely place to inhabit. I am your host and occasional solo caster, Tracy Robbins King. If you are inspired by this episode and someone comes to mind as you listen, share this with that person. If you have benefited from the podcast, please like, rate, and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Podbean. Your ratings, reviews, and shares make a difference and allow this podcast to reach more remarkable people like you. Kaylee Dayton is a nurse practitioner with a passion for bringing medical information to family members who have someone in the ICU. She also runs her own podcast, Walking You Through the ICU, and you, of course, can get consulting from her at www.dayton.icuconsulting. Uh, Kaylee and I know each other. I feel like we just ran into each other and had circles that intertwined. I, I have this memory that comes to my mind regarding when I actually, like I knew you before this moment, but I remember when we went to this bakery downtown and it was when you met or you were getting to know your husband. Like it was one of the first interactions I think you guys had together. Yeah. And I still remember how interested he was in you. I could see it from like the outsider looking in. And so this is so interesting to me that this is, uh, this is the memory I have of us, which is funny. Yeah, that's funny. Anyway. So. Yeah. We, I mean, we were in the kind of some of the same circles in DC, but then we met up again in Salt Lake and I yeah. just saw the world of you and I feel very honored to be in your podcast. Yeah. And I honestly am so excited about what you're going to share today. I had no idea. I was totally uneducated. And so I'm so excited for my audience to also get educated on this passion you have. So will you begin by telling us the story of how you got so passionate about helping people get access to ICU best practices? Yeah. My first job um, as a brand new nurse. um, In fact, I was even newer than, or worse than that. I was, had been a new nurse. Then I spent three years gallivanting through the middle East and central America. Then I came back to the States and I had no nursing experience and I had an interview in an ICU, which was a big deal. So they asked me in the, in the interview, would you be willing to walk patients on ventilators? And of course I was so new. I had no idea what that really even meant. And I just said, sure. Yeah. Teach me anything. I'll do everything. Sure. And still three to like eight years later, I didn't recognize how profound that question was. Would you be willing to walk patients on ventilators? Um, Because when I started working in that ICU, it's in Salt Lake city, Utah, it was completely normal to allow almost every patient to wake up after having the breathing tube placed. And then we would just remind them, Hey, remember what we talked about 20 minutes ago? This is the breathing tube. That's keeping you alive. Here's the ventilator. Remember in the ICU and the family's right there. And even shortly after placing that breathing tube, we would get them up and usually it was walking and we would just push the ventilator behind them in front of them, whatever it was. 
and walk them around the unit. And we did that throughout their time on the ventilator. There were some exceptions, right? If they're having seizures or have like an open abdomen or severe, severe alcohol withdrawal, um, you know, if they have pressures in the brain, there are some exceptions in which it is necessary to sedate a patient that's on a ventilator. But otherwise, everyone was awake. And I just loved working there, having connections with my patients. They would write on the board. I knew what foods they were looking forward to eating, what they did for a career, what they, what music they liked. I just knew my patients. And when we looked at our data, 98% of those survivors discharged home. They would get off the ventilator, they would walk out the doors and they would go straight home and not to a care facility or rehabilitation. And those were the first two years of my career. So that was normal. I never worked in any other ICU. Then I became a travel nurse and I went to the East coast and I went into an ICU for my first shift and it was dark. All the lights were down. Every single patient was in bed. Whereas where I'm from patients would be on the ventilator, but sitting in a chair or upright and awake and watching TV or texting on their phones. You know, this was, and, and don't think that this wasn't a real ICU. These were patients that they have a COVID unit right now. They've had it since the beginning of the pandemic. They've had the sickest COVID patients. These were extremely sick patients. So a lot of times, especially from the ICU community, they hear that kind of picture that I paint and they think, oh, okay, so those weren't sick patients. No, those were multi-organ failure, septic shock, very sick, sick patient, ARDS patients that we hear about during COVID, right? Those were sick patients. We just didn't let them get sicker. So going into this new ICU where everything was dark in the middle of the day, everyone looked like they were sleeping. The only sign of life really was the vital signs on the monitor. It felt different. And I got my patient assignment and I wanted to continue my routine. I wanted to see what their brain was doing. I wanted to get them in the chair. And so I asked my orienting nurse, Hey, can I get the sedation off and get them up? And the nurse looked at me in complete shock. And she said, what? No, they're intubated. Meaning they have a breathing tube. They're on the ventilator. And that didn't really answer my question because I had cared for at least hundreds of patients that were on the ventilator with a breathing tube, but were awake and mobile. So I, I was so new. I was so ignorant. I just said, okay, but why are they sedated? And then her eyes got bigger and she's like, because they're intubated. And I'd say, but why are they sedated? Like we just went in circles and we couldn't understand each other's perspectives. And I'm sure she was scared of me. I'm sure she thought patients were not safe with me and that I wasn't a real ICU nurse, that I had no critical care experience. Right. And I came to realize that I was very alone in my perspective that to, only to me, would I ever question whether or not to start sedation on a patient on a ventilator, because every other ICU, almost in the entire world, there are very few exceptions. The standard, the normal practice is to start continuous sedation right after you place the breathing tube. And this sedation, it's, it's um, anesthesia, essentially. It's what we give patients in the operating room. Um, and usually those patients are more stable. They have functioning organs for the most part, and it's given for a few hours. But in the ICU, we're giving those same medications for a few days or a few weeks or sometimes a few months. And the effect and the repercussions are completely different. But I didn't know that. No one taught me that. No one said, here's why we keep patients awake. No, here's what it looks like during and after sedation and these medically induced comas. No one taught me that. So I couldn't really explain or defend myself to other ICUs that I worked in. So I just realized, okay, I'm a travel nurse. I'm a guest. 
I have a lot to learn. I'm still a pretty new nurse. I'll just, you know, went in Rome and I went with it. I sedated these patients and I noticed that things were different. It felt different. I missed connecting with patients and I noticed that they just were really sick. They almost like seemed to stay sick for a lot longer. And they, we sent them to care facilities and I wasn't used to that. Still didn't totally understand. I went back to Salt Lake for my graduate program. And, um, one day I, um, sat next to a man on an airplane ride and he asked what I did for a living. And I told him I was an ICU nurse at that time. And the color just dropped from his face. And he started to tell me about his ICU stay. And he was in his forties, seemed pretty healthy, but he had had, um, an endoscopic procedure where they put a camera down his esophagus, but it poked a hole in his esophagus and he developed a really bad infection. And he went into shock and he had to be on the ventilator for a few weeks, but he barely mentioned the ventilator. All he could talk about during that time was what it was like for him to be in the middle of a forest with his limbs nailed to the ground with trees falling down on him and demons coming out of the sky and things that he still couldn't talk about. He was crying, telling me this scenario. And of course, in my medical brain, I just wanted to diagnose him. And I said, sounds like you had ICU delirium, which meant nothing to him. And I thought those were bad nightmares. But as I listened, I realized they weren't nightmares to him. That was real. It was vivid. It, he psychologically four plus years later, I was still trying to figure out if he lived those things or not. And I had never heard anything like that before. I mean, I assumed that he'd been put into a medically induced coma. So I determined to figure out if he was one in a million, or if that was really what was happening to my patients while I sedated them during my travels. So I went to ICU survivor groups and I found that a lot of their testimonials were the exact same thing, graphic, terrible things. They thought their kids were kidnapped. They thought that the thermometer was a gun being put through their head every two hours, just really traumatizing, vivid things that they're still, they can't sleep. The man on the plane said that for a year after discharge, every time he closed his eyes, he'd be stuck back in that forest floor again, lost in that scenario, living that again. And he couldn't sleep and he went into a psychotic spiral and he couldn't return to work. He ended up divorced from the love of his life because he lost himself. And he said, I died in the ICU. Like my life is over everything I knew. My life is so different now than it was then that I will never go back to the ICU. So he said he was DNR, DNI, meaning do not resuscitate me. Don't do CPR. Don't put me on a ventilator. He said, I can't live through that again. And I think what he meant by that was he can't live through that delirium, that those hallucinations, that ICU delirium. So then that got me looking into the research saying, okay, really, what do we know about this? How common is this? And one third of ICU survivors have PTSD. I mean, this isn't just like shattering at the memory. This is like panic attacks. This is like bringing home a war veteran from the hospital, right? One third of them have them for the first, I think month after discharge and one fifth of survivors still have it a year after discharge. And as I read the research and realized real memories of the ICU, when people actually understand and remember what went on in the ICU, that's actually protective against post-ICU PTSD. And that just was an eye opener. I'm like, that is the opposite of what we talk about. One at the bedside as clinicians, we tell each other that they're asleep. We say, well, it's better that they sleep. This is more humane. If I was on a ventilator, I just would want to be knocked out and sleeping. So then I started looking what's going on with the brain and the brain's not sleeping under sedation. Sedation disrupts the brain activity so much that it prevents sleep. 
So that's one of the ways in which it causes this brain injury. And so this delirium is actually called acute brain failure. It's an organ failure. Now in the medical community, we panic when we see any injury to the kidneys, to the lungs, to the liver, like those are vital organs for survival. But when it comes to the brain and when we sedate patients, we're not checking. And when we see signs of that failure, confusion, agitation. So there has been movement in the IC community to take off sedation, to lighten it. And so when we do a break from sedation, when we turn it down, usually the nurse is thinking, okay, we're going to see if they've had a stroke. Do they move their legs and arms? What we should be looking for is, do they wake up? Are they oriented? Do they know where they're at? Are they scared? Are they anxious? But when we do that, taking down sedation, they come out often agitated. They're trying to pull up the breathing tube. They're thrashing, they're fighting, they're kicking. I mean, it's very stressful for the family. It's obviously stressful, stressful for the patient and it's stressful for the clinicians. And we just see the terror in their eyes and we run back and turn sedation back on. And then they stop moving and we think, okay, we fixed it. We took away the torture that they're experiencing. And we assume that that torture is just from the breathing tube and the ventilator. What the ICU community is not talking about, what I'm trying to fix <laughs> is that that terror is usually from what survivors are trying to tell us. They think their kids are kidnapped. They think the sna- it's a snake down their throat instead of a breathing tube. We've taken away their ability to connect with reality and cope with what's actually going on. And we've sent them to somewhere that's probably worse than the reality of the ICU. And so instead of treating that and trying to bring them back to reality with certain important interventions, we resume the cause, a main cause, a big culprit of that brain failure, that confusion, the agitation, that terror, and we're setting them up for that kind of trauma. And not only does it traumatize them, but that injury to the brain can last that acute brain failure, that temporary brain failure can actually turn into chronic. So they can develop cognitive impairments after the ICU. We're now calling that more of a post-ICU dementia. Their brains under MRI can look like Alzheimer's patients. They um, lose their ability to remember, to recall things, to process things. They can't drive because they can't respond quickly to things. Everything slows down and that it totally changes their quality of life. So the IC community thinks that they're sparing harm, sparing trauma, helping them survive. And rarely is that the case when we start sedation, we're usually doing it unnecessarily and we're unaware of a lot of the harm that we cause. And so as I looked through that research, I kept thinking, and at that time I was working back in the awake and walking ICU and I'm like the IC community, all these good people, good clinicians that I worked with are totally unaware that patients can be awake, calm, oriented, and mobile on the ventilator, even during severe critical illness. How do I tell the world this? I felt so liable for that. I almost felt complicit in the problem if I didn't broadcast what we were doing in the ICU and the research. So I started a podcast for clinicians two years ago, right before COVID hit. God said, thou shalt start a podcast. Didn't even listen to podcasts, but I had to do 30 some odd episodes by the beginning beginning of March, 2020. I didn't know why. It felt crazy, but I couldn't sleep. And I just would receive this very direct guidance. I'd have to write down, I'd wake up in the middle of the night, in the morning, I have to write down what episodes to do in what order. And people came out of nowhere, survivors, clinicians, researchers to be on the podcast, to tell this story, to paint the picture. And then COVID hit in March. And I thought, well, now it's all about COVID. And it's almost like God shook me by the shoulders and he said, are you joking me? Millions of people are going to be on the ventilator. 
And also our system can't sustain this. When we sedate patients, they become weak. We're talking about the brain, but the rest of the body atrophies, and this keeps them on the ventilator for days, two weeks, two months longer. And here we are panicked about, do we have enough ventilators? Do we have enough staff? And yet we needed to implement a process of care that would get them off the ventilator sooner and open up the resources for other people. But we didn't do that. We actually went back to practices more from the nineties that we have long known were harmful. So that's uh, that's kind of how and why I started all of this. Wow. It's tremendously important, the work you're doing. So thank you so much for uh, in engaging and being a huge advocate for this information to get out there. You know, why did you choose to now, I mean, you're, you've kind of gone from the clinicians podcast to educating families. Tell me about like that decision to also start a podcast to help specifically address not just clinicians, but family members. From the very beginning, I just kept thinking just even within my own city in Salt Lake, I was realizing, I mean, I had worked as a float nurse in a multi-hospital system. So I had gone to five different hospitals and maybe like nine different ICUs. And I was seeing that the care and the outcomes varied depending on the ICU and they were in the same hospital system. And I was just thinking if I was a family member, I would have my family member sent to the one that actually sends people home and keeps them functional. And sends back the same person that came to the hospital. Don't families have a right to know that? Don't have families have a right to know? And, and when we put people into these medically induced comas, we don't tell them the risks. When we go into surgery, the surgeon discloses every little minute, tiny little thing that could possibly happen, you know, to cover the liabilities. And we sign a consent. We do seek consent usually for intubation, but we don't really include the sedation portion of it. A lot of patients don't know that they're going to be sedated. We just do it because it's so normal to us. We forget that it's, well, we forget, or we just don't know that it's a really big deal to the patients. And because clinicians are not aware of the risks, they're not aware that sedation, medically induced comas are often an option. It's often unnecessary. We don't tell the patient or even the family, if we do this, this will increase your risks of death, of dementia, of PTSD, of more time in the ventilator, more time in the hospital, living in a care facility for a few months. We don't, we don't talk about that. We just do it. And so I was just feeling very ethically uncomfortable <laughs> knowing what I knew, experiencing what I experienced. Um, and knowing that the public needed to know. Um, and I watched um, survivor support groups and family support groups online and seen these discussions. And I just kept thinking, these are proactive families that want to be involved. We've kicked families out of the ICU for so many reasons. I think at this point, families need to be in that back in the ICU big time. And I just kept thinking, I need to talk to them. And I, but navigating that was really difficult because there's been so much misinformation, so much mistrust in the ICU community and the public. I knew, and I kept feeling like I was supposed to start a podcast. It just took me a long time to figure out how do I present this information in a way that will empower families to be proactive, to be involved, to know their role as advocates, to have the tools to advocate, but also understand the ICU side. Because I feel like during COVID, because of so much of the misinformation, the conspiracy theories, there's been a lot of demonizing of the medical community. And that is not what I wanted to feed. I wanted them to understand the good intentions, the culture, the complications, and also understand that there are exceptions for sedation. I didn't want them running into someone that was having seizures and turning the pumps off. You know, I just want to make sure that we're responsible with this information, but 
it needs to be known and the public has a right to know. And so that's why I started the family podcast to try to provide those tools and support. And also even for survivors to understand why they're suffering, what they're suffering and what they went through. Because oftentimes they don't know why they're still having these panic attacks. Yeah. When people come into the ICU and they are a family member and they see that there is this expectation almost to put their family member on a ventilator. And at that point, the the moment of consent in that process, is there consent to be put onto a ventilator? I, that's my question. Yes, it absolutely depends on the circumstances. I think initially a lot of times COVID patients showed up very late in the game. They showed up and they were barely ha- oxygenating their bodies, right? And I mean, we had people die in the ER at the, at the door. They would just show up and die. As we got more education going, um, people started showing up earlier, sooner, understanding that the sooner they got help, the better their outcomes would be. So they would spend more time in the ICU and we were doing more things to avoid intubation. There is time often using COVID as an example, where they're on high levels of oxygen, but they're still awake. They're oriented. We can talk to them about it. We're, We're telling them each day, Hey, here's where your oxygen's at. At this point down the road, you may need to be on a ventilator. So I think with a lot of times with COVID, we have opportunities to talk about it, but it, uh, it depends on the individual. Sometimes they show up in so much distress that, you know, their, their oxygen is so low. You don't have time to have a conversation. You just have to say them, get that tube down. Again, there's so many different reasons to need to be on a ventilator that it absolutely depends on circumstances. Um, so if the fa- the patient can't consent and the family is involved, not everyone has family present. You know, we get people that we don't know who they are. But if the family is there, then we turn to the family for consent if there is time. But essentially, you know, breathing tube and the ventilator is to sustain life. And so in the ICU and the AR, you get situations in which you don't have time to chat about it. You just have to put it down and then then talk about it later. Nonetheless, you know, if someone shows up and they're barely alive, you stabilize them, the family shows up. I think then we need to be talking about, even if we overruled the consent, we said this is an emergency procedure. I think then we need to talk about it. And even if sedation is necessary, if they have a trauma patient or a stroke patient and they have pressure in their brain and we have to sedate them so they don't, don't increase their brain and herniate their brain, we need to say, tell families, we're doing this because it's essential, but here's some of the risks it may have. So when it comes time to take off sedation and they're agitated, we're going to need your help to keep them calm so we don't have to turn sedation back on. And we're going to need to re- physically rehabilitate them, work their muscles. Like we need to tell families so they can be involved and proactive and anticipate some of that harm. And when we discharge people that have had that kind of delirium, we should be telling them you may need trauma therapy. You need a specialist and we need to validate them. Some people don't tell anybody about the panic attacks and the hallucinations that they continue to have years after, because they think they're going to be admitted into the psych ward. They think that they're crazy. So they if we don't tell families and they can't support their loved ones and if we don't provide those resources, they can't recover, they can't rehabilitate. But I think the ICU community has to know first in order to provide that education. That may take a while. I'm working on that. So I'm hoping that the family podcast can even provide more awareness within the ICU community. I have I have an ebook on my website, DaytonICUConsulting.com that dispels six myths about medically induced comas. And I have families printing that off and bringing it to the ICU team saying, I want to talk about this. And it has 60 references to other studies. So this is all evidence-based. This isn't like 
me having suspicions and blowing this out of the water. This is all like decades of research that families can bring to the table. We discuss that as an ICU team and ICU family members are part of the team now. So you have every right to bring in the research and say, let's talk about this. Let's really do a risk versus benefit analysis for sedation on my loved one right now. Tell me why they're sedated. And is this actually necessary? And is this worth all these risks that I'm reading about? And I think that can be approached in a very collaborative way. Yeah. And I guess that that's always one of the things I do appreciate in the episode I listened to. I listened to a couple, but episode eight, you specifically give jargon and the wording. I guess that ebook does it as well regarding how to ask these questions so that you're not attacking, but that you're inviting a conversation to ensue and for potential, you know, other solutions to come forth on the table rather than feeling like you're just attacking their approach or what they did or the decisions they made for your family member. Yeah. And just, we have to consider too, that throughout COVID, we've had a lot of, a lot of really hostile conversations with the public about things that were not evidence-based. We're looking through all this research and understanding the outcomes of these certain interventions. And then family members are coming in because they read on this one website that said a lot of crazy things and they're getting hostile and demanding. That's the kind of interaction they've been having for years now. And they're traumatized from seeing so much death and suffering themselves and they're exhausted and burned out. So the last thing we want to do is go and burden them more rather families are there to be helpful. You want to be helpful. So let's do this in a helpful way. And I think families are essential too in helping keep patients safe and off of sedation. When families know what their role is, they're going to jump in and do it, but we need to empower them to do it and to recognize that they should be part of the team. Even if the ICUs aren't really used to that anymore, it's time yeah. for them to be used to having families on the team again. Oh man. Change. I am sure. I'm curious for you. How have you found yourself navigating this patiently rather than impatiently? Sometimes I'm not super patient. So my tone is a little bit different on my clinician podcast versus my family podcast. I'm much more blunt. I wouldn't hopefully not abrasive, but I'm pretty blunt on my clinician podcast because I'm desperate to have this be understood. But with a clinician podcast, I'm also talking very like scientific things, you know, like these are the facts. But then like just recently, I went to a conference, I went to a trauma conference in Denver, Colorado, and I was a little bit nervous at my first in-person conference to be presenting these things. And over Zoom, I can say lots of things, you know, saying you're harming patients, this is hurting them and then log out. But this is in person. I'm going to spend the next like 10 hours with these people and how will they take it? How do you, how easy is it to tell people that have worked so hard to save lives? have given their souls, their education, a good portion of their lives to help people. And then you're telling them that a pillar of their practice has actually been very harmful and likely unnecessary in many cases. That's a hard thing to hear. And it's a scary thing to say, especially since I hold them in such high regard. And so that took a lot of prayer (laughs) and it was actually a very spiritual experience. I just looked into their faces as they listened to survivors talk about their experiences and their outcomes. And I could see that they just still, despite all of the trauma, all the suffering that they've had the last few years, they still genuinely care. And they were open to that information. They were excited about the prospect of having more connection with patients and helping patients and seeing them get better and walk out the ICU. Like that excited them. So instead of becoming defensive, 
they were so grateful for that information. And that just reminded me of how good these people are understanding that they're doing their best. They're not trying to be malicious. They're not trying to hurt. Um, you know, they're not, they do these things, not because they won't do it in any other way. It's because they have never been taught or supported in changing those things. And we have to recognize that change is hard. It's complicated. And during a staffing crisis, a lot of these things seem very impossible, but they're not, they're not, but, but that's some, that there are a lot of barriers in order to change these things. Nonetheless, I think, uh, and people have experienced that advocating for their one loved one in that moment has still changed outcomes, even if the system continues in its same rut, you would say. And can you share any of the experiences that you've been able to help individuals advocate for their family members and the, the results of that advocacy for that patient? So one example of a family that I've worked with, it was a woman that had her sister in the ICU for pneumonia. She'd been on the ventilator and she had been sedated for, I think, about five days. She actually worked with my business coach and the business coach said, you, you should talk to this person. So this is me just experimenting with how to help families. And I explained to them what was going on, what the risks are, what could be happening. And I kind of listened to the details of her ICU stay and her ventilator settings, because there's a lot to consider when you're going to wake someone up and move them. But then just, I, they're just, according to the research, my experiences, I'm like, there's really no good reason for her to be sedated. So advocate, talk to them about the ABCDEF bundle, which is a protocol that's very recognized in the ICU community, but poorly practiced. That's a key word, the ABCDEF bundle, because that's something that every hospital should be held accountable to. We know that that decreases death by 68%. So to, for family to say, why aren't we practicing the ABCDF? And why aren't we turning sedation off and trying to get them up and moving? Because that is how you save this life. The IC community should have no reason to dispute that unless there is a specific exception in which sedation is necessary, right? So they were having these conversations, but it was hard. And this is a big teaching hospital. It was very well-renowned and yet... They were not comfortable. They were scared. And you have to consider a lot of these nurses are just coming in during COVID. We've lost a lot of experienced nurses that maybe knew how to treat patients that were awake and walking. And now we have these new nurses coming in and all they've been taught is deep sedation. If anyone moves a muscle, you turn sedation up. That's what they've been taught during the circumstances. And so they really had to be pretty firm with the team and say, we want sedation off. Let's take it down. When the the sister was coming out of sedation and she was confused and kind of moving around. They were helping hold her hand or she kick her legs. They'd help hold her legs and not hold her down, but just make sure she didn't pull her tube out. Movement is not bad. Actually movement is essential for survival. So they let her move and the nurses felt safer because the family was there and they knew that she wasn't just going to pull out her tube. That's always the fear that they're going to pull out their tube, which is a whole nother story. Just like you don't make people crazy. They don't do crazy things. That's been my experience. They're very trustworthy and they're actually protective of their lifeline when they get to understand what it is, but she didn't because she had been sedated and she was confused. So the family kept her safe and kept working, working. And they advocated for things like, can we sit her up? Can we stand her? But the team just was scared and not comfortable with it yet. Nonetheless, because they got sedation off so much sooner than they would have had the family not been involved or not been advocating for those things. She was able to get off the ventilator pretty quick and she discharged. And, and this happened with some, a COVID patient in Florida with a family member. They just were just doing a lot of things out of habit. And the wife came in there asking questions and 
pushing for things. And um, team said, wow, we've never seen a COVID patient do this well. And it's because they, because the sedation practices were so different, you know, like how many more people could have had those kind of outcomes, even in the wake and walk and ICU there in Salt Lake word on the street is that their death rates are less than half of the other COVID units within that same hospital system. So these family members were able to bring change because they were able to advocate for things that were very evidence-based. These are things that I and other people are talking about in medical conferences. This is not some ambiguous, like, you know, we're not talking astrology. This is, we are talking about actual medical practice. People say, oh, well, that ICU is very cutting edge. No, they've done it for almost 30 years. This is not new. This is not crazy. This is what you see in the research, but you don't see in practice at the bedside. So families have every right to advocate for that when they do, and they do so strategically and well, they can really can save their loved one's lives and prevent tracheostomies and rehabilitation and lots of long-term disability and suffering. How do people, so if somebody like me knows this information and I am actually in a position where I am intubated, what if I am intubated and I know this and I don't want to be sedated? How would I even communicate that? Uh, My husband knows my preferences. I have one of my best friends that I worked with in that ICU She's one of my POAs as well. And I know that she would storm the castle. You know, she, she knows she would know how to make sure I was safe. So I think we need to make those things known to our loved ones. Anyone that would be over our medical decisions. One of my first uh, survivors that I interviewed on my clinician podcast, walking home from the ICU, she had been on the ventilator three times. She had had ARDS, which is a very severe lung failure condition. She'd had that three times. The first time she had the classic cocktail, the conveyor belt treatment, and she really believed she was watching babies burn throughout her time on the ventilator. And so she was very traumatized by trying to save them for weeks. And then she had terrible physical rehabilitation and she was just determined to never go through that again. I don't know how she recognized that that was because of the treatment and not because of the ventilator. Because ventilators have gotten a bad rap, but they're not, they save lives when they're managed well. And when we prevent some of the harm that can come with it. So she went to her attorney as soon as she could and had documents drafted, protecting her against sedation. So we have like DNR means do not resuscitate. That means don't do CPR. DNI means do not intubate. Don't put me on a ventilator. She didn't go for those. She was still young. She had so much to live for. And she survived that terrible experience to begin with but she made herself a DNS, a do not sedate. So she had legal documents protecting her. She made it, just made them up. It wasn't a normal thing. And then the next two times she was intubated, she was not sedated and her experience was totally different. So I have pictures of her sitting there texting on her cell phone saying, I'm bored. That was her worst complaint. <laughs> and she was fine. And her, her recovery was completely different. Her experience was different. She's such a strong advocate. She says, I'm not afraid of the ventilator. I'm not afraid of that condition, ARDS, which apparently she's vulnerable to. She is terrified of sedation. So I think everyone has a right to make that part of their advanced directives, to make that known in their medical wishes, that unless sedation is absolutely essential for prolonging their life, they don't want it. They don't need it. You also talk about how when people are walked every day in the ICU and they have a process that they're exercising every day as well. What are some of the benefits of the exercise specifically and movement in the ICU? 
Well, some of the detrimental effects of being in a medically induced coma is that the sedation is toxic to the muscles. So, and especially to the diaphragm and the diaphragm is a big, large muscle that's essential for breathing. So when we think, okay, well, their lungs are sick. So we have to, we have to sedate them, which doesn't make sense unless they can't oxygenate. I think we think of the respiratory system as just the lungs, but it involves the muscular system, the diaphragm, the other core muscles, the other respiratory muscles. It also involves the brain. So sedation not only attacks the brain, but it attacks the muscles. And when muscles atrophy, when you lose muscle, it breaks down and it incites a huge inflammatory response. So critical illness, you've already got a lot of inflammation, especially during something like COVID. It's an inflammatory disease. So the muscles break down and it's like pouring gasoline into this inflammatory process and it can lead to multi-organ failure. So preserving muscles, preventing muscular atrophy is vital. So making sure patients are nourished and moving and not getting medications that attack their muscles like sedation is really important. So movements like standing, walking, not only preserve you know, the muscles in your legs and your core, but it engages your diaphragm sitting on the side of the bed engages your diaphragm. So even though the ventilator is doing the work of inflating your lungs, where your diaphragm's not dropping to fill your lungs, like it normally would sitting is going to make your diaphragm engage and preserve that function. Because what happens during a coma is that nothing's moving. You're not only on bed rest, which we know is detrimental, you're immobilized. You don't, you don't even move a muscle. So you lose a neuromuscular connection and muscle mass. But when patients are allowed to move, they connected to their muscles. It helps the brain. Mobility helps prevent delirium. One new study showed that it prevented delirium by 95%. So moving, connect, keeping your brain connected to your body can prevent uh, acute brain failure. You know, if you're on a ventilator for something going on with your lungs, when the lungs are better, when that infection or whatever's going on is improved, you still need to have the muscles to inflate your lungs. But what's happening with a lot of these, especially COVID patients is that even once the ventilator settings are minimal, the inflammation, the infection of the lungs is down. Now they don't have muscles to inflate their lungs or their brain and, or their brain is too confused to even mandate breaths. So when patients maintain that muscular system, once the, whatever process is making them need the ventilator, once that's resolved, they're good to go. They're ready to roll. They're ready to get that breathing tube out and walk out the door and they're safe to do so. We have patients that are able to do stairs even after getting off the ventilator. I don't know how to describe what it's like when patients have been deeply sedated for weeks, they lose muscle mass, obviously, but they also lose muscle neuromuscular connection. So one, it takes a long time for them to clear out the sedation. And then they have to spend weeks trying to like reprogram their brain. Sometimes they can't wake up for days to weeks because they're so damaged in their brain or the sedation hasn't metabolized out. Even once that happens, once they're actually awake, they're opening their eyes. You don't really know what's going on, but they can't lift a finger. They can't tell their finger to lift. It's because the connection's gone or the mass is gone. So it's like having an adult newborn. They can't hold their own head up. So you're trying to move this 200 some pound adult it takes a lot of work to sit them at the side of the bed and they're just flopping and you have to rebuild their ability to hold their head. So they can't, they're not safe to be on the, off the ventilator because they can't cough and clear out the mucus. They can't protect their airway. So it's just such a risk. Whereas we can prevent a lot of that if we keep them moving, maintaining those movements so that they're safe to breathe on their own once their lungs are better, once the infection's gone or whatever's happening. So mobility is a life-saving intervention. We just don't recognize it as such an ICU. We think it's very 
excessive or not a priority when we really should recognize that it's essential for survival in that moment, but also quality of life later. COVID patients often have to have tracheostomies because when you're going to need a ventilator to do the work of breathing, because you don't have the muscles anymore, you're going to need to be on a ventilator for weeks longer. So they do a tracheostomy, they cut a hole in the throat, put in a little cannula, and that's what's connected to the ventilator. In that awake and walking ICU, tracheostomies, even for COVID patients, are very rare because once the COVID's resolved, they're out of there. They're they're successfully breathing on their own. They're walking out the door as they're going home. So um, and there's always a process of regaining. You always lose some muscle, but it's very rare that they can't breathe on their own because they've atrophied so bad. Wow. Okay. Here's the thing. I think you can listen to this and be completely shattered by what has happened in a way that there's, that it isn't more common, but you can also be super optimistic that you now know, and that other people can know as well so that you can potentially have the information you need to advocate for your loved ones as well. And also that this information exists, that there's so much data, there's so much research that's really robust regarding this information. And I guess this is what you're working on in regards to the medical community, but just the fear, right? I can understand why nurses are afraid of the walking portion and especially when people have been sedated and they're coming off the sedation. And so I guess, how do you feel like you've been able to successfully help build their confidence when there is so much fear of the patient, maybe pulling out the the tube and all of that? Yeah. A lot of people talk about early mobility in ICU. I think one of the advantages to the process that I advocate for, according to my experience, is that we let patients wake up right away. Even teams that are trying to start moving patients sooner, they're still sedating them initially. And then maybe once they, their condition gets a little, gets substantially better, then they're going to start trying to rehabilitate them. Whereas where I come from, they try to prehabilitate them. They're much more progressive. So hours after intubation, they're walking. The advantage to that is that it's much safer. So we prevent delirium. Whereas if we start sedation, let it run for a few days, then we're unmasking that agitation, confusion. That is dangerous, scary, laborious for everyone. That's where teams are like, we don't have time for that. We're in a staffing crisis. We can't handle that. And where I'm saying, then don't start, don't cause the problem. Don't start the station. In most cases, you know, we can do that. Let them wake after up after intubation. And you're going to see, it's like waking up after colonoscopy. They're going to be a little groggy. You remind them what's going on. They're going to acclimate to the tube. It's not fun, but they're going to be okay. When they see that and they realize, wow, we don't even have to tie this patient down. Then they start like that paradigm starts to shift, but these are people that are treated. I mean, I had a medical director who's done this for 45 years. He said, I had no idea that we were doing this harm, let alone it was possible to have patients this way. He started to do notes with a few, a few of his patients. He tried to pick the really easy, safe ones. And he's realized that that experience was totally different. So then it's trying to get the other clinicians to come in and see, come look at this patient. That's just chilling there texting on their phones or playing the guitar. They have to see that seeing is believing, right? Um, it makes me question everything else in my life. I'm like, what am I so used to? That's completely wrong because that's what they're so used to every patient on ventilator being sedated that it's just hand in hand. So when you cut that cord, allowing the experience of seeing patients be safe and reliable, 
then they start thinking, okay, who else can we do this on? And then have the experience of having them, a patient help sit themselves up at the side of the bed. And they realize that wasn't that scary. That wasn't that dangerous. They did fine standing them up. Like they have to have that hands-on experience. So I think I tell teams start with the easy ones, just give your team that visual, give them that victory, start there, make a case study out of it, make a big deal. Like have the whole team see that, take pictures, you know, get patients. You can get a patient's permission to take pictures when they can authorize that, right. When they're awake and um, send it out to your team. Like just my Instagram for my clinician podcast is walking home from the ICU. It's full of pictures and videos of patients playing volleyball, um, dancing, playing the guitar, walking, sitting, standing, squatting on the ventilator. I think that is very powerful. So I think it's part of dispelling the fear. We have to dispel the myth. Now, when they are agitated, that gets harder. We have to have them really be really confident that I know why they're agitated. It's because they have delirium because they're having this brain failure. And I know that sedation is going to make that worse. So I'm going to stick with it. And I'm going to have all these other resources. They just, ICU teams aren't really, um, they're not very collaborative yet. So they need to figure out how to use all the resources, occupational therapy, speech therapy, physical therapy, families. Cause right now it comes down to the nurses. If a patient's agitated, thrashing, trying to pull out their tube, it's only the nurses that are trying to deal with it. That's not safe. It's not feasible and it's not possible. So trying to figure out how to have a game plan for when things are not picture perfect without just shutting them up and knocking them out is going to be key, but I think they have to have the experience of preventing harm and how much easier that is. And then everyone's going to start wanting to have it that way, rather than having to deal with the repercussions later of what we're doing. And the divorce will happen, which I love that you talked about the divorce (laughs) between, you know, ventilators and sedation, that there needs to be a great divorce between those two so that we can actually bless the patient who is really the goal. Like that's the goal of everyone is to like serve that patient. And so that is a really lovely and beautiful. And of course the goal, the end all goal is to get those two to not be hand in hand. Absolutely. And and really the clinicians, that's what they're there for. And so almost easier than I expected it to be to have people reconnect with those roots, why they're in the ICU and then to believe it. So I have all these podcast listeners trying to then convert their ICU teams. And so it's a process and hopefully things get moving. I'm speaking at a lot of conferences coming up and I've been invited, which is encouraging that they're seeking out that information. They recognize, I mean, everyone's had to face the music here. Everyone's had to really see what we've done and they're tired of it. That's part of the burnout is that they're tired of watching poor outcomes and patients languish and suffer and then die after they worked so hard to keep them away or alive. So I'm hoping that this is part of the healing process for the ICU community and the medical community overall, that we can decrease the burden by improving care, improving outcomes, and hopefully people stay, but we've been losing a lot. Kaylee, thank you so much for the work you do. It is truly touching. I know like you're going to save people's lives and you have like, that is just so exciting to, to be a part of something that is so important. I am truly like clearly touched, but I'm also just super grateful that you are somebody who knows how important it is to get this information out there and to help people to become more empowered in their positions. It's been a spiritual journey. And I, I just know that God loves his children, that their suffering is important to him. He wants to prevent it. And he wants us to have 
fulfillment in our careers and families to be intact. And he wants us to be humanized. It's been a huge testament to me that he cares very much about his children and he wants this done and fixed. Yeah. I love that so much. And I'm so grateful that it has not just been like a, an educational, you know, a mental journey, but it's also been a spiritual and an emotional, I mean, all those and physical, just all how all of these bodies are encompassed hmm. in this as well. Right. Cause people's mental, their capacity to make decisions also for their medical life in those moments where they can actually be coherent and that's just transformative in and of itself for think of you thinking of yourself in that position right oh i mean i can go on and on about patients that where their families come in and they their condition turns around within a few days um like they needed that spiritual connection with their families they needed a reason to live i don't know how to physiologically explain it, but I know that it's true that we're humans that need human connection. People that have chosen to withdraw care, they're like, no, I'm, I recognize I'm not going to get better and I'm done. And being able to say goodbye and, and have those, like those intimate family moments at the end of your life. Like this is very, this is a human journey, human experience. And that's what we're going to bring back to the ICU. Love it. Thank you so much for everything you're doing, Kaylee. And of course, how do people contact you? My email can be found on the website, DaytonICUConsulting.com. Awesome. Thank you. As well as the ebook, which is um, a really good just overview of what's going on. And remind us again, is it your, your Instagram handle is at walking, walking home from the ICU. Okay. That's the goal, but people walk home from the ICU.